everybody, and welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast, a podcast where we explore all types of athletes and athletics, from NFL players to climbers to hikers, and plenty of experts on all of those topics. We want to make you the most consummate athlete that you can be, and we're learning a ton in the process. I'm Molly Herford, author of five books on all things cycling-related, lover of all things fitness-related, and writer of all things outdoors and fitness-related. And I'm Peter Glassford, a registered kinesiologist here in Ontario and also a certified cycling coach. I've been doing that now for about 15 years, so I spent a lot of time in the summer, especially on the trail, helping people do all sorts of bike tricks and just be safer and faster and everything else on their bike. And then mm-hmm. in my spare time, I try and race bikes and this year, Ironman. So yeah, so we're coming in close to the about a month out a uh, month and a half let's not let's not get ahead of ourselves oh, i don't here. plan on doing anything for the week or two before so okay. uh, except sort of... for racing mountain bike nationals yeah but that's just you just sit around and then go really hard for yeah that's minutes. that's a really good taper um yeah, yeah no problem there so on the topic of you and bike skills and bike trails you had a really good day yesterday of riding with some of your various clients yeah, it's really hot in Ontario, so we had it's can- boiling. Canada. Oh my gosh. So we actually, it was a crazy three days because Saturday we had a big kids event, sort of the day before the Canada Cup uh, in Barrie. Did some Shred Girls stuff there, which is my new series. That was super fun. Handed out a lot of stickers. Yeah, so we had 150 kids out riding, and lots of the pros and junior athletes sort of helped these athlete or younger athletes, younger riders get around a little course and spend an hour sort of doing basic skill stuff so i had a lovely group of seven to nine year old girls that by the end of it were each hugging a leg or grabbing my bicycle or or something and saying that i had to ride the entire race with them i will point out someone uh someone mentioned on facebook like oh i hope these kids aren't really training like full time or anything yet uh when i posted a picture and they are not. It was really just like a super fun afternoon with like a really casual Yeah, no, there was race. it was more just getting around. And I mean they're all, you know, the there there's a couple kids will cry or whatever because it's a little intimidating having a bunch of kids and stuff. But I would have been sobbing. I sobbed. Did I ever tell you about when I my mom took me to soccer practice for the first time ever when I was 5 and I just cried until they let me go home? Yeah, I mean, at some point, kids need to get exposed to that, I think, so. Yeah, uh, at five, it was not not the time for me yet, apparently. But no, most of them were just sort of learning how to get rolling on their bicycle or, you know, bump over some logs or corner around things. So it was it was good. It was fun. And they all liked to see, you know, Haley Smith, who won the Canada Cup, was out from the Norco team and um, a couple of bigger name people too, some Olympians, Raph Gagne was there. So it's cool. They like to see all these people and, you know, sort of aspire to that, I guess. But, mm-hmm. So that was fun. And then we raced the Canada Cup on Sunday, which was good. And I actually had some decent form there for a change and felt pretty good. I owe that to a day of on Friday where I didn't really think about much and just sort of, I think I cleaned the van and cleaned some bikes and walked around without my shirt on in nature for a while. And yeah, it was weird. Yeah, but it was rejuvenating. And then, so raced pretty well Sunday. And then Monday, went down to Waterloo and rode big volume block on the tri-bike. My, uh, one of my fastest clients, Robert, sort of gave me a good tour of Waterloo and region. 
and uh, as a road athlete was very kind to ride with me on a triathlete tri- triathlon bike we most roadies would not do so so uh, but he rides tt bikes fairly frequently he understands so he gets so. it yeah so that was good and it's it's he's a really smart dude so and he's done a lot of work on his tt bike so he was giving me some pointers and whatnot so we had some reverse coaching going on there which is good and then in the afternoon, I got it on trail at the Hydrocut Trails, which are where I rode in university with a couple of clients. And we had some really good breakthroughs on keeping our head up and riding steady and or riding rather smooth, I should say, not steady, yeah. but also steady. Yeah. Well, and this past week has been more of a rest week for me, partially because I was due for one, partially because I just had a ton of work stuff to get through, uh, which actually kind of leads perfectly into today's podcast, which I'm super excited about because I found... Jamie Moyne online just totally happenstance and it turns out we lead fairly parallel lives which we kind of get into but she's a writer and adventurer uh, sort of similar to us although she writes more for National Geographic. Uh, She has a great book on climbing out so we talk about a bit about that, about some of her adventures, there's talk of sled dogs, it gets really cool. So I'm pretty excited about this episode. I've been waiting a while to put it out because she has a thing coming up on June 18th that she'll tell you all about. Uh, I have a thing coming up on June 18th as well. I turned 30, so that's that's exciting, uh, which I think I also talk about in that podcast. Not that I'm stressed about it or anything like that. <laughs> anyway, enjoy this episode and we'll talk to you guys soon. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. I'm here with Jamie Moy, who is an adventure journalist who writes about human-powered travel and exploration by foot, ski, bike, and paddle. Uh, so as soon as I stumbled on her, I was like, oh my gosh, I have to interview her because we we have a ton of you know stuff in common, but also I can ask her all of the questions that I always get asked, which I'm very excited to hear. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, so you and I are both uh, fellow American ladies turned uh, almost Canadian residents. Uh, you just recently bought a house in BC. What uh, What about BC drew you in? You know, I have been enamored with Canada um, pretty much my whole life. I just love the wide open spaces, the vastness, the remoteness of it all. And then After spending some more recent time in British Columbia um, as an adult, it just kind of, to me, felt like, hmm, it's almost like the logical migration path might be Colorado, Montana, British Columbia. Mm -hmm. And so I've been in Colorado for 18 years, and I'm kind of just skipping over the Montana part because, like, I'm a high (laughs) Yeah, and going straight to British Columbia. But just the, the amount of outdoor recreation is, like, inversely proportional to the amount of people and it's it's just incredible yeah I completely agree it's one of my favorite places on earth we spent a lot of time out at Whistler the last couple years and I mean I know that's a pretty like people heavy area in BC but it was enough to give me a taste for how it is out there and it's amazing so I'm super jealous (laughs) (laughs) but Ontario is pretty good too but anyway you, how long have you been an adventure journalist? So let's see. I went at this full time in January 2009. So I guess that would put me just slightly over. Do the math. Help me. Like it's early. Eight, year, eight <laughs> years. Eight years. That sounds good. Let's go with that. 
Okay. So which of all of the styles of the human powered travel and exploration is your personal favorite? You know, it's funny because it it really sort of depends. Mm-hmm. I think for me, the, the driver always ends up being the story. Mm-hmm. So it, I think some people, they write so they can adventure. Mm-hmm. I adventure so I can write. In other words, it's all about what I need to do to kind of fuel the art or the creative side or, or to produce. I'm like this compulsive writer. And so I get really, really enamored with a story and then I'm off chasing that. And the medium almost doesn't matter. So it doesn't matter if it's a story about biking across Egypt or if it's a story about trekking across Palestine or if it's a story about you know the first team of paragliding pilots from around the world who are looking to summit Kilimanjaro and paraglide from the top. So you know that would be trekking and paragliding. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's more, it's more the story itself. And, and the medium almost becomes secondary. Oh, I uh, love with that. that said, <laughs> with that said, um, if left to my own devices, I think I really like to just be out in the woods. And whether that's trail running or backcountry skiing or camping, um, that's just kind of my happy place. I recently discovered dog sledding in the Yukon. Whoa. So I've always had a really um, soft spot in my soft spot in my heart for animals. I've always been a really strong advocate of, you know, animal wellness and welfare. And so I shied away from any kind of sport or activity that utilized an animal. Mm -hmm. Um, So dog sledding didn't appeal to me. But um, my partner's aunt lives in the Yukon kind of near Whitehorse. And she introduced me to a woman she really likes and admires who has a dog sledding, I'm going to call it camp, um, out there a ways outside of Whitehorse. And I went and actually lived with her for about a week um, and got introduced to the sport, you know, directly from somebody who lived, breathes, and dies it. And, and it was really eye-opening to me that I had a lot of misperceptions about it. Um, just really happy dogs. And mm-hmm. I met a lot of really cool women who live out there in like a yurt with their four sled dogs or their two sled dogs and they're their pets and they're their, you know, their adventure companions. And they will just go out for days in the wilderness, in the snow, just like backcountry camping, but with your own like little mini sled dog team. Oh, I was just like, awesome. wow, that is right. Yeah. I actually met a team of sled dogs when I was staying with this like random ex terror racer in California for a couple weeks. And he had, he was in California, but he had, owned a team of sled dogs from Alaska. I'm not really sure how it worked out, but I just remember like those dogs were sort of miserable in California unless they were like running on a beach with like tires chained to them. So they had something to pull and it was the weirdest thing. So I was like, Oh, <laughs> these dogs are really psyched doing this. They're like miserable being lazy in the yard. <laughs> oh yeah. And it was cool to see them as, you know, as pets, mm-hmm. as, you know, individual dogs who are also part of a team. So mm-hmm. I love that kind of that blend. I always just thought of it as like a bunch of dogs out on chains, you know, with their mm-hmm. little tiny houses like in the yard. But this was a whole different thing. And yeah, I'm really, once I'm living in Canada more full time, I'm really wanting to do some stuff like that. 
and also ski during um, <laughs> with a dog. I think that would be amazing. Mm-hmm. So is getting a dog next on the list once you guys officially move to BC? Hmm? Oh my gosh, absolutely. That's one of my short-term goals. Currently, I have a parrot, um, and she's great. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's amazing. But not so much for the outdoor. No. Not so much outdoor sports. (laughs) No, there was one Italian cyclist that recently passed away that uh, used to do his training rides with this parrot on his shoulder, though. So maybe you could could train yours. You know, I well, I do my pull-ups with the parrot on my head because I figure that's adding (laughs) a little bit of weight. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) Have you taught the parrot to say motivational things as you do the pull-ups? No, but she does quack at me like a duck, which is, (laughs) you know. That's awesome. I don't know what that's good for, but it makes me smile. Yeah, which, I mean, you kind of need when you're doing pull-ups. So I like that. (laughs) You can do that big race this year, whether it's a gravel grinder, Grand Fondo, mountain bike marathon, or a stage race. Don't put it off or show up unprepared. Let Smart Athlete, that's Peter Glassford, help you train optimally for your goals. You are not the same as your friends or a random pro. Get a plan that fits into your life and takes your fitness and your experience into account. As a kinesiologist, professional cycling coach, and experienced rider, I have a unique balance of theoretical and practical experience that can help you reach your goals. Whether you need a simple training plan to follow or daily contact to dial in your training and adapt to your changing lifestyle and needs, or maybe you just need a skill session to get ready to hop logs and shred some trails at an upcoming mountain bike race, I can help. Visit smartathlete.ca to find out more and get started. Okay, so which came first, your like love of writing or a love of like the travel and the adventure? Hmm. You know, I think I've I've I think I was probably born with all of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know for me, like um, I was always a writer. Like that was just a hundred percent, and I was the least active kid in the universe. So, like for me, definitely the active part came later, but. It's always really interesting to see, like, yeah, which which part of it came first to kind of form this one cool collective job that you do. It's kind of a chicken and egg question, but mm-hmm. I'd, I'd have to agree with your history. I mean, I grew up in a suburb of Cleveland, Ohio. Okay. And so my activities growing up were, like, um, cheerleading and mm-hmm. gymnastics um, and ballet. And while, you know, I was an active kid, I wasn't an outdoorsy kid. Um, but I was constantly reading and writing. And then it wasn't until I moved to Boulder a year after university um, that I started getting into more of the outdoor sports. I mean, a little bit like in university with climbing and stuff, but it wasn't until Boulder that I really shifted. Um, it was like the whole world had opened up in that regard. And so when it came time to start thinking about, hmm, now, what can I write about mm-hmm. as, you know, for me, it was a second career. I had worked in tech for the first nine years of my career. I was a database analyst um, at Sun Microsystems when I started writing on the side of that job. And, yeah, it was a question of, well, what can I write about? And they say if you don't have any experience in the craft or getting published that you should write about what you know. Mm-hmm. And what I happened to know at that time was road bike racing. 
Like, you know, when you have a job that you're just not passionate about, you take up hobbies that you get really into. Yep. So that was, that was me. So I was working, you know, I was a desk jockey at Sun and then I was racing on Colorado's number one ranked women's amateur team in the state. And so my first published pieces were actually in Velo News, which is a cycling journal published out of Boulder. Oh man, that's awesome. Do you Yeah, it's kinda like I found something I could I could write about. Yeah. <laughs> and people would pay me to write about and it just happened to be my outdoor pursuits and it kind of just snowballed from there. It's funny because like that just kind of hit like some of the best advice I always give people that are like asking about how to get into writing about, you know, whatever. I mean, first of all, it's always really helpful, I think, like if you're pretty much writing for the passion of it, like you had a regular job. It's not like you needed to write, you know, these pieces to pay the rent. So you got to focus on exactly what you wanted to focus on. Mm hmm. Um, which I think, you know, so many people kind of try to skip that step and just go right into writing for money. <laughs> and I feel like that doesn't work a lot of the time because you don't get to like develop writing about what you love. Yeah. And because in the beginning, the money is definitely not there. I mean, yeah. it took me a good three years. So if you're not passionate about what you're writing and you're, you're making you know barely nothing for it I can see how that'd be a really demotivating combination yeah absolutely do you remember your first like story that got published slash would you ever want to look at it now because I remember mine and <laughs> the answer is no <laughs> that's funny I have trouble looking at even something as when I turn something in I'm like oh done this ah. is fabulous Yes. Woohoo! And then when it gets published, you know, even if it's online several days later or if it's in a magazine several months later, regardless, I can't even look at it. I'm like, yep. oh, this is the worst thing ever. Um, so funny. I don't know if that ever goes away. That I'm eight years in now and I'm still doing that. But uh, my first piece was in the 2008 Velo News Buyer's Guide, which came out in March that year. And it was a story on, oh, it was a review of six different women's mountain bikes. And okay. then I had a little sidebar called What Makes a Bike Women's Specific. Cool. I love that you can yeah, remember that. It was that. kind that's of awesome. service writing. <laughs> oh, man. I wonder well, how much that's changed between now and then. What's funny, too, is when I got the paycheck. It was just like <laughs> light bulb moment. I was like, oh my God. I thought to myself, I would have done this for free. And I was like, shh, don't say that out loud. I don't think that. Yes. <laughs> like, I was so shocked to get a paycheck for that because I had always gotten paid for, you know, work in tech, which was satisfying and kept me, you know, kept my mind occupied. But mm -hmm. it wasn't really something I loved. Yeah. No, that's always funny to me. Like even now, I yeah, I've been doing this for like 10 years and I am still surprised when people want to or like are willing to give me money to write about things like this. I'm like, "Really? Cool. It's <laughs> <laughs> amazing." Yeah, I don't I don't know if that feeling ever goes away either. I, you want to pay me to do what? Yeah, exactly. Let me think about that. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, what is the coolest story that you've ever done? I'm going to also ask the craziest, so they don't have to be the same thing. 
Oh my gosh. Um, I know it's like favorite child kind of thing, but I know. You can also lead with craziest too, if coolest is, is hard. Or craziest situation you've ever been in for a story. Yeah, I'm. I think I would say the coolest one I ever did was. Um, it was actually my breakout story for um, National Geographic Adventure, and I. My gosh, the years escaping me even. Um, <laughs> wow the story ended up being called wings of kilimanjaro and the premise was this group of paragliding pilots um, based in australia had this dream of launching their paragliders from the top of kilimanjaro which is the highest point in africa and you know people paraglide off high peaks like it's it's pretty common off like mont blanc and some other mountains, but Kilimanjaro is a little bit different for two reasons. One, the, the government there refused to issue permits for it, so it was illegal. Mm -hmm. They just, it was too dangerous. They, they had never really addressed it. They weren't sure how to kind of regulate it. Um, and, and two, that you know, that danger element is because Kilimanjaro, top to bottom, is really tall. I mean, Everest is really tall too, but you're starting already. You know, say Everest is 29,000 feet. You're starting at base camp at what, like 20,000 feet? Mm -hmm. or maybe it's 18,000 feet, whatever. But Kilimanjaro, top to bottom, it's taller than Everest um, in that regard. So what happens is you have kind of two different atmospheric um, types that kind of merge. And that point becomes really dangerous for paragliding pilots okay. to kind of cross through that. So it was just, it's kind of dicey. But these Aussies were just like hell bent on it. Um, and the guy behind it, Adrian McRae, he spent years convincing the government of Tanzania that this was a good idea. And then he, he kind of like put his money where his mouth is. And it's like, look, I'm going to pledge a million dollars in, in like direct charitable support to organizations that directly impact Tanzania from water quality to economic development. And so finally the ministry of tourism was like, okay. And they greenlit the project. And it was like, so I went up with the team, including Adrian, and the team who was basically scouting the mountain to determine, okay, you know, it's not a technical mountain, but is it possible to get a team of paragliding pilots up there with, like, you know, carrying their paragliders? And um, he was expecting a fairly large group of people to do it, um, to kind of sign up and pledge money for it. Mm -hmm. So he's thinking, well, you know, what if we have 50 people? from around the world and all these team supporters, like are there camps on the mountain that can support us all? Are there passageways that are going to be too narrow to get our gear up? So anyways, that's what we were doing. And we basically kind of circumnavigated the mountain kind of slowly going up and like checking out each camp along the way and then getting to the top and finding where's the most optimal place to launch from the top. Cause obviously you want a place to kind of is, gently descending, not a lot of, you know, debris or obstacles. So for me, um, as someone who had been doing some high altitude mountaineering and trekking, it was really cool to just watch it from a paraglider pilot perspective. Mm -hmm. Like I felt like we were always 
stopping and they were always like staring at the clouds like oh well look at that <laughs> lenticular cloud formation oh do you see the way that bird is soaring that's a great thermal right there and it was just totally different perspective so kind of like cool and sciencey and I just loved it and Kilimanjaro is an amazing mountain it's really chill it was a really nice just kind of walk up it um I really liked it a walk up Kilimanjaro just you know like a really casual (laughs) (laughs) I I I guess I mean it wasn't it wasn't technical yeah right like you didn't you didn't have to have ice axe or crampons you know you weren't worried about like getting stormed off the mountain um by snow for example I just, I've never heard someone so casually refer to climbing a mountain like that. I love it. <laughs> awesome. And did was it successful? Um, the You know, the scouting trip went really well. And then they had their actual launch planned for, gosh, maybe it was like six months later. And they raised a ton of money, got a ton of interest. And unfortunately when they got up there they had a really bad um weather pocket and nobody felt comfortable going off with the exception of one team went off the top um and they were pretty exceptional they're the same team that went off the top of everest um i think maybe the year before so okay their name their names are escaping me but they are both nepalese gentlemen and um, you know, once you've flown off the top of Everest, I think maybe just nothing phases you. Yeah. And they were kind of like, ah, you know, whatever. High winds, clouds, whatever, we're off. And and so the first official um, Wings of Kilimanjaro is the name of their project did go off, but only one of the teams actually flew. Oh, man, that's crazy. So then everyone that didn't fly would have to trek back down with all of their gear. Yep. That hurts. I feel like I might be tempted yep. to just like throw caution to, um, to the wind in that case um, and just be like, nope, I'm, I'm not carrying it down. I'm just going to fly. It's fine. <laughs> well, you know what? This is a testament to, I believe, um, Adrian McRae's screening process for the folks he brought up. Mm-hmm. Like he was definitely not going to run a slipshot operation and he wanted people who were truly professional and that they were you know people who are seasoned at expedition and adventure their greatest skill is knowing when to say when absolutely right knowing when to turn back and to not let ego or whatever push you forward um and so kudos to them Mm mm-hmm but yeah I hear you (laughs) yeah that would definitely be a hard call to make um, have you ever been on any of your stories or adventures that like went completely awry? Like that one sounds like, okay, like it had potential to be bad, but like it, it, you know, it went off. Somebody got down, nobody died. Have you ever been on one that was like, like legit crazy? I feel like every adventure on some level has a bit of cray cray in it. Yes. <laughs> Mostly because things never go the way you planned and it, it becomes like this exercise in flow and readjusting your expectations. Um, but you know, the, the craziest trip I was ever on, 
was one that actually got somewhat dangerous. And that was when I went to Afghanistan to report on the country's first women's road bike race team. And that was my breakout piece for ESPN. Mm-hmm. I remember and, that piece. Yeah, that was 2013. And, you know, things have been pretty stable for a while there at that point. Nothing like we're seeing today. And so while it wasn't the safest place to travel, it was not as risky as it was, you know, a couple years before and even today. But still, when I got there, um, I might have been a little bit overly optimistic (laughs) about (laughs) how safe it actually was. I mean, the Taliban were still active. They had just launched what they were calling a spring offensive, which I remember finding really surprising because that to me sounded like the kickoff of like football season. Yeah. Um, (laughs) But it was more like, hey, we're going to wage war on you now. (laughs) And, uh, you know, that was just, it was weird so weird and foreign and creepily scary to me and it was just such a normal way of life there but mm-hmm. I had trouble kind of relaxing and adjusting even though the people I was surrounded with you know mainly the women of the team and their families um they were all really you know nobody was like up in arms over it yeah, it wasn't just- like we'd, we'd step into one of their homes for an interview or some filming and they were all like really shaken and upset because the news had reported XYZ. It was like, I was the one who was all shaken and upset, but I still couldn't just sort of tone down my anxiety. And I couldn't like mold into the local view of it because it was just so different from anything I'd ever seen. Mm -hmm. Um, And to me, it just felt like a level of danger that I had never had to assimilate. And, you know, there was some, there was a, a car bomb went off like a block away from our hotel and another hotel or guest house was kind of infiltrated an American woman staying there was raped. Um, The city went on lockdown for like foreign journalists or people working in the NGOs where they basically kind of didn't leave their houses. And I was like, Whoa, this is, this is kind of not what I, (laughs) where I think I can be and kind of keep my head about me to be reporting Mm-hmm. And then, interestingly, the story, I wrote several stories from that, including the ESPN one, but the one that got the most attention um, was the one about me kind of losing it a little bit there and, you know, chickening, literally chickening out of, like, going on a training ride with the women, which was supposed to be, like, the highlight of my trip, right, as, like, the captain of a women's road bike race team now going on a training ride with these women in Afghanistan, and, yeah, I was, like, curl up in the fetal position in the follow car. <laughs> I would have been yeah. right in there with you. So I get that. It's it's always funny to me every time I talk to Shannon Galpin, who, you know, obviously was kind of crucial in starting the whole mountain to mountain and all the Afghan cycle stuff. Every time I talk to her, she's so casual about it. Like she loves it there. It's it just doesn't seem to like phase her and I'm sure it does in the moment, but I'm always just so amazed at how like calm she presents it. I'm just like, this all sounds terrifying. Oh my God. It's funny you mention that because obviously Shannon was my connection there and the person I traveled with and I had been reporting on her at that point for three years. Mm -hmm. So I knew her and her work well, like we'd spent time in person on the phone, different events and 
But in Afghanistan is when it really hit me like, holy shit. Like this woman makes it look so easy from the outside. Yeah. You have no idea. When I saw her there, I was like, okay, this is, this is hardcore. She has some kind of skill or ability to ground herself in what is a really terrifying situation. And, you know, again, that flow state, like she's totally got it. And I was just so deeply, deeply impressed and Mm -hmm. moved and inspired by her. I mean, I was like huddled. There was days where I was huddled in my room in the guest house and like paralyzed to even go anywhere. And she's just like, yeah, I'm going to go have lunch over at the, you know, whatever expat cafe. And, and, and I'm like, <laughs> Fine, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to stay here. <laughs> oh, man. I, I can't even imagine, honestly. It's one of those things where as, a, as an adventure like journalist, when you're dealing with mainly stuff like, you know, base jumping and things like that, it it doesn't really occur to you that suddenly you could be finding yourself in the middle of like a politically charged situation, not just like an athletically scary situation. (laughs) Yeah. Or to be a, you know, to be a target for a terrorist because you're a white woman Mm -hmm. um, who's a foreigner. Like that was really rough. I'm used to, I'm used to talking to people who are really psyched to talk to me because I'm going to be reporting on like, you know, their latest adventure feat. Yeah. Um, I'm not used to being looked at as, you know, a journalist who's a target or someone you wouldn't want to talk to or someone you would actually want to harm. So yeah, that's rough. Yeah. That I can't even imagine. Um, okay. People. And after now that we've like scared everyone away from wanting to be a, a journalist or doing any of that, um, the question I most get asked, and I, I wonder if you get asked the same is, the how do I get your job question. So, first of all, are you familiar with this question? Yes, yes, I am. <laughs> how do you answer? I, I'm so curious. Well, I guess, I mean, I can get into all kinds of like philosophical questions I would ask back to the person asking that question in the first place. But let's say like I've pre-screened them and I feel like, you know, they're legitimately a a contender for this lifestyle and this job and that it comes from a place of authenticity. Um, In that case, I would say to start with what you know. So, you know, if you don't have any actual clips, which is our industry term for writing samples that you've had published in places, um, you know, outside of like journal entries and letters home to mom, um, you start with what you know. So something that you might have some level of expertise in outside of the, of the normal person. And for me as captain of an amateur women's road bike race team, you know, that was something that made me credible to write about cycling, even though I didn't have a lot of experience reporting on it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, even if that's not ultimately the thing you want to write about, um, you know, for me, women's mountain bike reviews wasn't my ultimate goal. I prefer to report on the intersection of outdoor recreation and other issues, whether that's social justice issues or diversity issues um, or even health and fitness type stuff. But anyways, I'm digressing. Um, so <laughs> start with what you know um, and also start small. Mm-hmm. I think it's easy to immediately think of, 
you know, there's magazines you can think of or publishers you can think of off the top of your head. And that's like, oh, National Geographic. Oh, Outside. Yeah. Um, yep. <laughs> but those those outlets don't publish unknown writers. Um, and they certainly don't publish unknown writers who don't have any other samples to show. Um, so there's no shame in starting small it also gives you a chance to kind of practice and hone your skills right because let's face it (laughs) it's not an easy discipline or art and I know for me like I didn't I didn't feel bad about starting with uh, you know a subject I knew with a small kind of niche local magazine and then I just sort of expanded from there Mm -hmm. you know you have your kind of goal Mm -hmm. goal list what do you want to write about who do you want to write for and a big part of what I did was read. And that includes, you know, finding authors or other writers whose work I admired and studying their work, their the way they structured their stories, sort of their tone, their voice, um, and also reading the magazines that I admired or wanted to be in. Yes. Oh, yeah. So many people that I talk to want to write for, yeah, XYZ Big Magazine, but don't actually read it <laughs> and it's the well, amount you know of how you can tell that uh, when they you pitch you a story right that already got written <laughs> or, or that you they pitch you a story or like, what do you think of this about, about this idea and I'm like oh you've never actually read the magazine have you yeah what they're saying is like so not anything that would be considered a story to that particular outlet yeah no they don't read about that at all <laughs> Yeah, I've definitely had people be like, oh, I have this like genius idea for a story. And then they give me the pitch. And I'm like, yeah, like, I wrote that like six months ago, in this magazine. Like, (laughs) you know, yeah, it's a great idea. That's, that's why we've done it. (laughs) So like, I don't know, though, I feel like that's at least on the right track. That's true. Yeah, they they did get the concept (laughs) right. And I mean, like, I have to admit, like, you know, the world of, like, outdoors journalism has kind of exploded. Sorry, I have, like, a phone ringing in the background here. Um, It's exploded in such a way that, like, now I think a lot of the stories have been written. You just need to figure out new ways of telling the story or writing the story. Because, I mean, there there's yeah. so many. I mean, even cycling magazines, right? There's dozens of them now. Like, eventually we're yeah. going to be overlapping with the same kind of story it's just how how can you make the same like summer training 101 story interesting year in and year out and that comes back to the writing i think yep and something that i've seen shift that's made me really happy actually is things are swinging back towards a preference for narrative style writing yes so you know now that we have the interwebs supplying so much of our like quick hit lists, you know, where to go now, what to do here, mm-hmm. you know, letting us like quickly research trips and things. What we're looking for outside of that is more of those narrative experiences. So, you know, those real stories from real people um, that tend to kind of move you or transport you in another way than just like researching, you know, where to go or what to do. And, I don't know about you, but I really like writing those kinds of stories, whether it's a first person narrative or, you know, I'm profiling somebody else or another company or just something that's doing something really inspiring and telling that story. 
Absolutely. And I think that's actually probably part of why you and I both write books as well as like write for magazines because it offers, you know, even more of an opportunity to do that. And yeah, you're right. Like finally, it's definitely shifting back towards the longer narratives in magazines. But I know that's part of why I wanted to start writing books was because I wanted to write those narratives. Um, so, yeah, and kind of do that deep dive. Exactly. Hey guys, if you didn't know, in addition to doing this podcast, I'm also the author of a few different books on cycling, including Saddle Sore, Ride Comfortable, Ride Happy, which came out last November. So, if you were on a ride and you sprained your ankle, would you say something to the group you were riding with? Of course you would, but what about when you're on a ride and you realize that you've gone completely numb down there, or you're chafing so badly you're afraid you might be bleeding? Uh, most people don't speak up in that case. Most people will just suffer in silence and have no idea why they have massive saddle sores, uh, if they realize they have saddle sores at all, or they just won't ride that much anymore. So it doesn't matter whether you're a beginner or a pro, this stuff happens. It's awkward. We don't love talking about it, but that lack of communication is hurting our riding and it's making it so much less fun. So, enter Saddlesore, the first guide that answers all of these embarrassing, awkward, or plain weird questions that you have about the bike and those sensitive areas. In my book, you learn how to diagnose and treat saddle sores, how to choose a saddle and a chamois, whether a pad is better than a tampon, what causes numbness on the bike, how to get back to riding after pregnancy, and so much more. And you also find new chapters, including a section for male riders and a ton more questions than the original edition that came out in 2014. So pick up a new copy of the 2016 version over at consummateathlete.com backslash shop, where you can find more info on the book or the link to buy it over on Amazon. And we'll have it in the show notes as well. Give it a look. So I want to hear about your book that came out last September, On the Nose, which you co-authored with Hans Florin. So tell us about how that whole co-authorship came up. I'm always super Yeah, interested. so Hans Florin is kind of a climbing legend in his own time. Um, he's in his early 50s now, and he is probably best known for his really audacious speed records, um, especially... You're not just in like the speed climbing competition circuit, but on the big walls of Yosemite. Um, and his favorite route, his claim to fame, is definitely the nose of El Capitan, which is, you know, a very sheer 3,000 foot granite. I'm going to call it prow. It's kind of like it looks like a nose, actually, mm-hmm. um, of this giant rock formation. And People did not figure out, people, human beings, did not figure out how to scale that wall until, oh my gosh, I'm going to butcher the date. I think it's 1958, which for the record is four years after they figured out how to climb Everest. Um, and in 1958, I believe it took that team a period of like 18 months to figure out oh. how to get up it. And that time has been getting, you know, whittled down from then to now, faster and faster. I think someone did it in 24 hours or less for the first time in the 70s. And then Hans kind of came along, and this was when sport climbing was really kicking off, and you know, competitive climbing and rock gyms are starting to come up, and you know, the X Games, and Hans is kind of like, take these principles to these 
big walls. And he was a California boy, so Yosemite was kind of his natural playground. And he started trying to figure out how to climb that route faster. And the book really tells his story and in turn tells about, you know, the movement of speed climbing and big wall climbing in Yosemite and the rest of the world. And he now climbs it, the current record, and he holds it with Alex Honnold, um, is two hours. I think it's two hours, 26 minutes, 34 seconds. I, I'm Holy. butchering that, but it's, yeah, right from 18 months to two and a half hours. Yeah. So that's really what the book is about. And it's also trying to answer the question, why? Because Hans has climbed this route now 102, I think, times. You know, like, that's wow. talk about crazy. So it's like, what, you know, what's making you tick, dude? <laughs> and this is another example of, you know, what sport do you do or what's your favorite adventure modality? And this one came up in the climbing realm. Um and Hans had written some books before, more like how-to books on speed climbing for Falcon, which is a small publisher that's an, an imprint of, um, gosh, Roman and Littlefield in Connecticut. And when he came to them with his idea of doing more of a narrative that was kind of bookended with his first ascent of the nose back in the 80s and then his 100th, which he was going to do in September 2015, they were like, yeah, this is awesome, but for a narrative, you're going to need a co-writer. Mm-hmm. Um, he... He wanted John Krakauer. I don't know why that didn't work out. Um, and they basically <laughs> kind of gave him a list of like, well, here's some some writers in that genre who are, you know, not quite that expensive. And yeah, right. The the, names that, that might be more reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like the poor man's John Krakauer, apparently. Hey, if you could put um, that on your business card, sounds pretty good to me. Well... That same publisher did publish JK's first book, so <laughs> I'm, on, I'm on my way. Hmm? There you go. Poor yeah. man's John Krakauer. I love it. Right. So um, I had just had another big project fall through when Hans emailed me, or I, I might not have done it, but I was kind of like, well, you know, that whole flow thing. I just had a door like kind of slam in my face, and then this totally random one opens. So I'm like, yeah, let's talk. And, uh, I really liked his personality and I thought he definitely had a story there and some interesting insights to share with the world. So I was like, let's do it. And um, yeah, we started talking in the summer of 2015. By September 2015, I had gone and climbed the nose with him. That was his 100th ascent. Oh, cool. And then, yeah, then we went to work writing the book, and that happened all of fall and winter and early into 2016, and then the book launched in September 2016. Man, I'm going to have to bug you when we're not on the podcast for some tips on how you uh, how you handled the whole co-authoring thing, because I'm in the middle of a project similar to that, uh, cycling-related right now, and I'm curious if there's any good like workarounds or best working practices, I guess, you've found for working with you know, with an athlete for, for writing a book. Cause I imagine it's a very interesting process. <laughs> it is that it is. And I can definitely give you um, <laughs> some feedback on what, what worked for me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sure. But let's talk, let's talk about the climb though. What was that like when you got to do it with him? You know, <laughs> I, I hate to say this, but it was kind of like going to Afghanistan in that I sort of go into these things 
a little bit naive because again I'm enamored with the story and I maybe don't totally think through what I'm getting myself into um (laughs) (laughs) and you know I live in Boulder Colorado it's a climbing mecca I took up climbing in college I've I've climbed outdoors I've climbed indoors I'm definitely comfortable with the techniques of belaying and tying knots and yada yada um what I was freaked out about was the exposure. I hadn't done, I hadn't done any big walls. I hadn't even done multi-pitch. So I had to definitely kind of get my, I'm going to call it my big wall climbing head. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had to do that pretty quickly. So what I did is Han set me up with a mentor based here in Colorado, Bill Wright. Um, He's really seasoned and an excellent instructor. And he took me out to um, El Dorado Canyon, which is, you know, a, a really classic trad climbing area just outside of Boulder. And I thought he was kind of, let's say, teaching me some multi-pitch techniques. I found out later that he was actually vetting me um, for Hans. Like, oh, okay. hey, can, yeah, can this girl keep her head? Is she going to freak? three pitches up, how is she going to react to when, you know, she's suddenly that high? And, you know, I, I did okay. And I, I obviously, I passed their test and I liked it. So I was nervous as hell going into, you know, to do the nose though. We're talking 3000 feet instead yeah. of a couple hundred. Feet. But the tip that I took with me, I, I had two. One was you don't have to look down. <laughs> and two was you know it doesn't matter if you're 100 feet up or a thousand feet up if there's some freakish catastrophic accident or gear failure like the end's gonna kind of be the same Fair which enough. It's, it sounds a little bit morbid but it it was kind of empowering to me like you know what it does a thousand feet two thousand feet it's it's not anything worse right Still a really long drop. (laughs) Yeah, like you're still going to splat. So, yeah. So, yeah. (laughs) There we go. Um, Any other tips for new climbers other than don't look down and you might die? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Climbing has this amazing tradition of mentoring and a passing down of wisdom and experience so I would say take that like grab hold of that there Mm -hmm. are people there are Hans Florines and Bill Wrights all over the country and they absolutely love the mentoring so Mm -hmm. like take advantage of it um don't be afraid to do something outside of your comfort zone if you're doing it in that sort of safe mentoring type situation that is how the sport has progressed and has been passed on from generation to generation and you absolutely are part of that birthright and it's one of the most amazing things about not only climbing but also mountaineering oh I love that even in a climbing gym I've found that like the times I've gone solo to the climbing gym I've always ended up like you know I'm an awkward person like I'm not really great at like approaching groups and be like hey can I hang out with you guys but, like, people kind of, like, bring you in and make you hang out with them. <laughs> like, it's, it's true. The, it's coolest the coolest people, <laughs> The coolest people in the climbing gym are the ones who are climbing the five, like, the handful of 514 
yeah absolutely and they'll just like sit there and hang out and talk to you for like way longer than you think is you know even your greatest expectation yeah it's amazing I love that yeah definitely awesome well we should we should wrap this up but tell everybody how they can get on the nose and when they should get on the nose Oh, yeah. So On the Nose debuted as a number one bestseller on Amazon. We Mm -hmm. actually had three printings of it, which was super exciting. Yeah, more than I ever expected for like my first book and kind of a niche climbing book. But I think it sort of transcends the sport into asking some of those bigger questions about how do you live a satisfying life and, you know, ultimately what motivates you and where should you put your energies. And so something we're doing to try to get the word out to that larger audience is um, Father's Day, which is June 18th. Um, It's also Hans's 53rd birthday. And Father's Day is the five-year anniversary of Hans and Alex setting the latest speed record on the nose. So we're doing just kind of like a relaunch or like a big push um, on Amazon. So it's sort of like, hey, buy your copy of On the Nose on Father's Day, June 18th. And if we have, you know, 5,000 people doing that, it automatically jumps it up to become not only an Amazon number one new release back in September, but now it will become an Amazon bestseller. And whether it's in the mountaineering category or in the California travel category, you know, whatever, but that it'll do the trick. So that's just kind of like a nice feather um, in Hans's cap. But more than that, it's also a community kind of motivator and it's a fundraiser for the access fund. So if you want to, yeah, if you want to set your audacious goal in climbing, if you want to climb the nose 100 times, if you just want to get on your first multi-pitch route, it's the access fund who's enabling those audacious goals to happen, right? So they're the ones keep, keeping our ca- climbing areas open. So for every book purchased on Amazon on Father's Day, June 18th, Hans is donating a dollar to the access fund. And that adds up. I mean, we're hoping to be able to donate $5,000 at the end of June 18th directly to the access fund. That's awesome. I don't know that I'm going to be able to wait till June 18th to to get a copy. I've I've, you know, seen I've seen it. I haven't read it yet. I'm now so excited to. But June 18th is also my birthday. So he and I share a birthday. And now I'm going to have to make my husband buy it for me as a birthday present. So there we go. I love that. And then <laughs> order, you know, order three on Father's yeah. Day. Sure, you have some awesome dads you can give gifts to. <laughs> Absolutely. Exactly. All of our listeners out there, June 18th, do it. You can remember it because it's my birthday. Because obviously that would be why you'd remember that date. <laughs> right? Promote setting audacious goals like Hans Florine. <laughs> Absolutely. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for chatting. I think we're going to have to have some some offline conversations here too now, especially once you're up in Canada, which is very exciting. I think I think that sounds great. Awesome. Well, thank you again. Oh, let everybody know where they can find you. I am at jamiemoy.com and that's j a y m e m o y e. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter um at @jamiemoy. And I'm also, I'm pretty public with my Facebook um, stuff as well. So lots of ways to connect. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, thank you again and have a great day. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Molly. It was fun.
Yes. All right. Talk to you later. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. We would love if you would head over to iTunes and leave us a review. And while you're there, consider subscribing. We'd also love to connect over at Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Molly J. Herford and Peter is at Peter Glassford. If you have ideas or questions from today's podcast, or you just want to browse some of the show notes and past shows, you can also check us out at consummateathlete.com. Thanks, guys, and we will see you next time. <laughs>